Uh, well, good morning to everybody. It is, it's great to see some guests. Um, it's really fun to, to have guests and visitors, so thanks for being with us. Uh, for whoever's on Zoom, it's, it's good to have you with us as well. Um, we are going to be in Acts chapter 25 today, so if you don't have a Bible, you can get one off the resource table. I also have some sermon handouts over there. I didn't know if I was going to have them for today, but I, I have them. So you can grab a clipboard, and there's at least three blanks to fill out on there. In case you're a blank filler-outer, you could grab one of those. It also has all the quotes. We're not going to have slides today, so if you want to follow along, uh, grab one of those, and it'll have all the quotes and statistics and stuff that I have in the sermon on that. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. So we're in the final section of Acts. So the, the last quarter of Acts fully the last fourth of the book of Acts, which is, which is 28 chapters, is uh, Paul's journey to Rome. He goes to Jerusalem. Jesus says, yes, you've preached, you've been my witness in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to send you to Rome. And, and sort of the last fourth of the book of Acts is how he gets to Rome. And so before he goes to Rome, Paul has his famous defense speeches where he has to defend himself. I should say he gets to because he relishes these opportunities because he gets to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he defends the, his own uh, faith and the Christian faith before uh, a, a crowd in Jerusalem, before the Jewish high council. He also stands before two different Roman governors and a Jewish king. So all these people, he gets to defend the faith and share the gospel with them. And originally, some of y'all know this, but originally Kevin was going to cover the first of those two Roman governors today. His name's Felix, Antonius Felix. Um, but Kevin came down with what we think is the flu. That's why I was praying for him. So uh, we love you, Kevin, if you're on there. And uh, he's going to get to come back next week if he fills up to it and preach on Felix. So we're going to do a little switcheroo today, and I'm going to actually preach on the next the next governor, the second governor that Paul goes before, whose name is Festus, and, uh, and I get to preach on him today. And the next week, uh, we're going to jump back two years to Paul defending himself before Felix. So you got all that figured out in your head? Great. Uh, I don't think you're going to miss a beat, honestly. Um, so speaking of political leaders, it's, you know, the midterm elections. And so this made for a relevant sermon. And I think Kevin's is going to have some relevance too next Sunday. Uh, but, but speaking of political leaders... The Pew Research Center uh, has been doing surveys and polls for decades and decades. And this one particular poll that they do each year is called the, um, what is it called? It's like the Public Trust in Government Poll. And they've been doing it since the Eisenhower administration, since 1958, tracking the public's trust in government. And you can see it. I don't have a slide for you today, but you can see how it started with about 75% of American adults that, that trusted that at least most of the time the government's going to make good decisions and do the right thing. And that was in Eisenhower, Kennedy. And then you start, it falls through the 60s, 70s, Vietnam, a lot of different things. Kind of goes up a little bit with Reagan and it starts, it just trends down the whole, the whole way down. So now they just released uh, back in June, the one for this year. And they report that only two in 10 Americans, less than one fifth of Americans, say that they trust the government in Washington, this is the federal government, to do what is right just about always. That's only 2% of American adults right now trust that the federal government will do the right thing just about always. And then uh, most of the time is only 19%. So really only two in 10 people think that the federal government will do the right thing at least most of the time. 
All right, and that's historically a pretty low point. It's been lower, believe it or not, but it's trending down, as I said. And I talk to people all the time who have, and even in our church family, who have very little trust in the government and very little faith in politicians. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that that I talk to people about, but, uh, well, we won't get into all the reasons for that. But the point is, a lot of people, their faith in government, their faith in politicians has been eroded, particularly in the last 20 plus years, right? Um, and those feelings usually only intensify during campaign seasons because that's when you're reminded constantly through hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising by all the different parties just how much of a dirtbag the other guy is, right? And so we all kind of hear everyone's a dirtbag constantly, and then we're like, man, these people are dirtbags, you know? Uh, and so people, you know, your faith in politicians erodes, and especially so in these campaign seasons. And some people don't even want to vote because they don't have faith in any of the candidates. It's like, why should I even participate in electoral politics? It's not, I mean, you know, everyone's a dirtbag, you know? That's kind of how, I'm, I'm not chastising you if you hold those, those feelings. But if you feel that way, I think today's sermon is going to be a huge encouragement to you. All right, this is going to be great. Today's, today's passage reminds us that God works through even the worst political leaders. We don't know what bad political leaders are, historically speaking. I mean, these guys that Paul and Peter and everyone were telling uh, the, the first century church to show honor to and respect to and obey, so long as they didn't lead you to disobey the laws of God, these were horrific people. Sometimes, I mean, Nero, I mean, if you've read anything about some of these Roman emperors that they were supposed to honor and show respect to, you would be aghast. You would not vote for Nero. I promise you that. Okay. So this reminds us that God works through even. And so today's big idea is simply this, that God is sovereign over government, all governments for all time. And so we can trust him no matter who's in office, no matter who walks away from the election on Tuesday in Congress or in the gubernatorial races or, or in your local school board elections, right? No matter who's in office, we could trust God because God is sovereign over government. He works through all sorts of political le- leaders, even the oppressive, oblivious, and opportunistic ones. And we'll see that in today's passage. Did you know God can work through the oppressive, oblivious, and opportunistic political leaders? Yes, he can. We're going to see that. So let's look at those three things. God works through oppressive Politicians, look at the last verse in Acts chapter 24. Scoot back to Acts 24 and look at verse 27. It says, this is after Felix, which you're going to hear all about Felix next week with Kevin. You're going to love it. But it says, after two years had passed with Paul being imprisoned under Felix in Caesarea, which was like the Roman capital of Judea, right? Jerusalem was like the cultural religious capital. And then Caesarea is where the governor was. And so after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, the new governor, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, probably specifically the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders on the Sanhedrin, wanting to do them a favor, he leaves Paul imprisoned, okay? So Felix was an oppressive and unethical governor. He was unscrupulous in ways that we can't even imagine in our modern context, okay? Uh, In fact, he's eventually replaced 
So he, he works his way up to governor of Judea through political intrigue and political connections and all this stuff. He was married to Cleopatra's granddaughter and all this stuff. That was his first wife. So he works his way up. He gets in with Claudius, the emperor, works his way up, gets this sweet spot. He started out as a slave and worked his way up to governor of Judea. And so, um, but he's replaced. When Nero replaces Claudius as emperor, uh, Felix is replaced because of his violence toward the people in his province. He had these violent, suppressive tactics when it came to like uprisings in the community and people that disagreed with him. So much so that they complained so loudly from Judea that uh, Nero yanked him out of there and replaced him with Festus. Okay, and Luke also tells us that that Felix kept Paul in prison for two years as a favor to the Jewish leadership, probably because he needed to score political points with them. Because when they would go ultimately to Rome to give a report on how Felix did as governor, he needed them to, to um, say some nice things about him so he didn't get in too much trouble. All right? So there's all sorts of uh, personal motivations here. But listen, here's the point of this first little verse. God was at work through Felix. God was sovereign over the, the gubernatorial reign, I guess you'd call it that, of Felix, who is this oppressive, unscrupulous governor. During those two years in prison, Paul was protected from the plots of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. They had had numerous plots to try and take him out. They wanted to kill Paul. And he was basically protected by the Romans while he was imprisoned in Caesarea. So he's, he's there, and he also, during that time, has time to strengthen the local churches, particularly the churches in and around Caesarea, but he has access to friends. He's able to bring people in from the church to equip them, disciple them, encourage them, pray for them, strategize with them, and he's able to share Christ with people all around him, including Felix, and that's another thing Kevin's going to talk about next week. He uses those two years of being unjustly imprisoned, even though he was innocent, to do the Lord's work. So the Lord was at work in and around and through and above and behind and in front of and below all of what Felix was doing, okay? All right. God also works through oblivious politicians. You know, I had to keep the O's for alliteration's sake, okay? But, but it really does fit. Oblivious is the idea that you're just, you don't, you don't realize what's going on. You're, you're unknowing. You're unwitting uh, when it comes to things happening around you. So look at the first five verses of Acts 25. This is where Festus steps in. It says, Festus then, after arriving in the province, that's Judea, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea three days later. So he knows that the power structures in his province are centered in Jerusalem. So he's going to go visit all the leaders and the, the elders of the people and stuff there. So it says, and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. So right off the bat, they start telling this new governor about Paul. They bring charges against him, and they were pleading with Festus, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought, that is Festus, might have him brought to Jerusalem. And then at the same time, they were setting an ambush to kill Paul on the way to Jerusalem. They're trying to get him in between Caesarea, out of the Roman protection, on the way to Jerusalem to take him out. And so Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody in Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, have the influential men among you go there with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, have them bring charges against him. So from what Luke tells us, 
it seems that Festus was oblivious to the plot to ambush Paul. And, and we had, uh, back in Acts 23, just two chapters ago, a group of Paul's enemies, 40 men who had taken a vow to not eat or drink until they had killed Paul, they went to the, to the leadership, the chief priests and the elders on the Sanhedrin council, and they said, hey, we got this plan to kill Paul. If y'all will ask the Roman commander to bring him to Jerusalem to be tried before the council, we'll kill him on the way, right? So they had already tried this before in, in Acts 23. So now it's happening again. Um, but that last plot, you remember how that got foiled? Remember, Paul's nephew, like, overhears them talking about it. And so he goes and tells Paul. Paul's, you know, under arrest by the Roman commander. And Paul sends his nephew, the Roman commander, and says, tell him what you told me. So he tells the Roman commander, hey, there's a bunch of guys out here ready to ambush your your soldiers to kill Paul. And so that's when he sneaks him out at night with a bunch of soldiers and cavalry to bring him to Caesarea so that they could protect him. So back then, God was using this unwitting Roman commander to protect Paul, the Lord's apostle. And, and once again, we see God protecting Paul through a Roman leader. Guys, these guys were not compassionate towards Christianity, right, and towards Paul. They were just doing their jobs, but God was using them, even though they were oblivious to some of these things that were going on, he was using them to protect his guy. And so even though Festus didn't seem to know what was going on, his decision to keep Paul in Caesarea essentially saved his life. He might have just been going by the book, right? But it saved Paul's life. And this was another example of divine protection. We see God's invisible hand made visible through how he takes care of his people, even through people like Festus. And then finally, God also works through opportunistic politicians. Think about words like selfish, self-serving, pork-barreling, whatever you want to call it, right? God can work through opportunistic politicians. Look at verses 6 through 12. These are the last verses in our passage. It says, After Festus had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, so he's hanging out with all the leaders and power brokers in Jerusalem for a week, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought. That tribunal is the the bema seat it's the seat of judgment that that uh, a roman tribunal would sit on to to exact justice to give judgment okay so he's having a trial so he sits down uh on the bema seat he orders that paul be brought after paul arrived the jews who had come down from jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him which they could not prove this reminds you of jesus it should If you go back to Luke 22 and 23 and the trials that Jesus faced, nobody could get their story straight. The false witnesses couldn't get their story straight. They could not prove that Jesus had done anything wrong. That's why they kept saying, this this man's innocent. So too with Paul. They're not able to prove that he had done these things. So while Paul said in his own defense, I have not done anything wrong, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar, So right there you see the nature, kind of the threefold nature of the accusations against Paul. That he'd broken the the Jewish law, tried to desecrate the temple by bringing in Gentiles to the temple, which wasn't true. And then also uh, that he had broken Roman law by by treason, by worshiping another king, by serving another king besides Caesar. So they're trying to trip him up on both ends of it, right, with the Jewish law and with the Roman law. and, and, and in so doing, they're trying to pressure Festus to go, ooh, we've got to deal with this guy. But it says in verse 9, But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul and said, 
Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Now, I don't know if he knows about the plot at this point, but he's trying, they want him, the, the Jewish leadership wants him to come to Jerusalem. And so Festus is like, hey, I'm new to the job. You know, maybe I should bring this guy to Jerusalem to satisfy these folks. And so he asks Paul, though, do you want to go to Jerusalem? So it's kind of like, uh, I don't know what to do. And Paul says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. He's like, I'm where I need to be. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. By the way, that's kind of a slap in the face. He's like, you very well know that I've done nothing wrong. You know I'm innocent. I see what's happening here. It's kind of what Paul's doing. If, therefore, I am in the wrong and have committed something deserving death, I am not trying to avoid execution. Paul's like, if I did something deserving death, I'm not fighting it. You know, I'll maybe not happily go to execution, but I'm not going to beg off is, is kind of the exact translation, execution. But he says this, but if there's nothing to the accusations with which these men are bringing against me, no one can hand me over to them. And look at what he says. I appeal to Caesar. Paul was a Roman citizen. A Roman governor cannot, on trumped-up charges, knowing a Roman citizen like Paul is, is, is innocent, cannot send him to be tried in a Jewish court in Jerusalem. This, this would be highly inappropriate. And Paul knows that. Festus knows that. Everybody knows that. And so Paul... Uh, lays claim on his ancient right as a Roman citizen to basically jump past Festus and go straight to Rome and to Caesar. It wasn't always Caesar himself that, that uh, judged these issues, but it was going to Rome and someone on behalf of Caesar. And so he says, um, I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his council, these are like the savvy sort of political people that are giving him counsel, he, he had uh, conferred with them. He answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So it's clear that Paul was innocent with regard to both Jewish law on the one hand and Roman law on the other hand. And it's also clear that Festus did not want to declare Paul's innocence. You see how he's kind of in the, the horns of a predicament, right? He's like, I know you're innocent but I don't want to declare your innocence. And why was that? Because he would infuriate the leaders that hated Paul and wanted him dead if he said, hey, Paul's innocent. Uh, and these were the folks that controlled the power structures in his province. And one of the things that Roman governors had to look out for were uprisings. They had, they had had to suppress uprisings all throughout the history of Roman governorship in Judea. And so he's like, okay, I don't want to make these folks mad in Jerusalem, but I also don't want to... Uh, you know, not do my job as a Roman governor with this Roman citizen, okay? Uh, and if he had let Paul go and they had, they had murdered a Roman citizen, now all of a sudden the Roman governor with all the Roman soldiers has to do something, right? And that would put him in a really tough spot right in like the first day on the job, you know? And so this is a tough thing for him. So even though Festus knows Paul is innocent, he asks if Paul would like to stay in trial in Jerusalem within the reach of his enemies, Paul understands the danger because he had seen these plots before. He knew what was going on. And so instead he appeals to Caesar, which again was the right of every Roman citizen. It was one of the most ancient rights of Roman citizenship. And this provided the perfect opportunity for Festus to what? To rid himself of Paul. 
he can get Paul out of his hair. And it's like, well, Paul's a Roman citizen. He appealed to Caesar. And it's like, all done. So he's a Roman citizen. I'm a Roman government. I got to send him to Caesar. Sorry, leaders in Jerusalem. You know, we're, I'm going to let Caesar deal with this in Rome. Okay. So this is like the perfect opportunity for Festus to kind of split the horns of the dilemma and, and get away scot-free. And so he happily is going to send Paul to, uh, to Rome. So, to sum this all up, God is sovereign over government. Don't get lost in the trees and, and not see the forest here. God is sovereign over government, all governmental authorities, all governmental leaders. And he can always work in and through political leaders, even if they're oppressive, even if they're oblivious, even if they're opportunistic and self-serving. He can still work in and through and around them. And all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, no kidding, from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, God constantly reminds his people that he is sovereign over human governments. We've been talking about this in our leadership cohort. Uh, Our topic this last month in uh, September was, uh, because the midterms were coming up, was the church and politics and the church and government and what scripture says about these things, right? So we've we've been looking at tons of scripture on that with the guys on Friday mornings. And um, and one of my favorite verses, one of the key verses for the church, the church's relationship to the government and to politics is in Romans chapter 13, verses one through seven. And in it, God's word explicitly tells us that governmental authority is established by and accountable to God. Does that mean that when God establishes authority of governmental uh, leaders, that they necessarily do what God wants them to do? No, they have free will and they oftentimes use it in horrendous ways. And they will be accountable to God. They will stand before Jesus Christ someday accountable for what they did with that authority. Okay, and we, we can trust that God will avenge whatever needs to be avenged, okay? Justice will prevail, but not perfectly in this life through these governmental authorities, okay? Only perfectly through Christ and his kingdom. And so what does Romans 13 one say? Paul, the very guy we're talking about here who's getting kind of mishandled by the government, he says this to the Roman church. He says, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That's a big pill to swallow. But we got to swallow it. There is not a single governmental authority that has ever existed that hasn't existed as a direct result of God establishing it. But there are terrible people that have misused and abused their authority in horrendous ways. And again, they will stand and be judged for that. But we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We can't act as though governmental authority is not established by God and accountable to God. And we can't disregard passages like this. Just the other day, I was reminded of God's sovereignty over governments. I was talking to John Cartwright, actually, and uh, we had a great conversation about uh, historical figures that show up in the Bible in the Old Testament in particular. And, um, and you know, the Bible cares about history. I mean, that's how the birth narrative, I mean, we're going to talk about this in December, but I mean, it's, it's like in Luke chapter two, it's in the midst of all this political reality stuff going on in a census and who's in power and who's emperor and who's the, 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 the uh, local official and all this stuff is, is the moment that God chooses historically to bring the Messiah into the world, to incarnate the son of God. And so, History matters, and the Bible has great historical context. And so when you get to the Old Testament, um, there's, there's this talk about um, 
these political leaders that God anticipated, he foretold. And we're going to talk about why in a second. But for instance, Isaiah 44 and 45. If you go to the last couple of verses of Isaiah 44 and the first verses of Isaiah 45, Isaiah was an 8th century B.C. prophet. He was, he was prophesying in the last half of the 700s B.C., like 700 and something years before Jesus Christ was born. He was also prophesying more than 100 years after. He died probably more than 100 years after a certain leader named Cyrus the Great who conquered the Babylonians was ever born. And so in Isaiah 44 and 45, Isaiah foretold the reign of Cyrus the Great by name, this Persian king who would arise to conquer the Babylonian Empire, again, more than 100 years later in 539 B.C. And Isaiah calls Cyrus God's anointed, his chosen one, and God's shepherd who would return his people back to the land. Now, if you want to be cynical and say, well, that foretold the future, so it must have been written after the events happened. People do that. That's just a way people can deny Scripture that actually foretells things that come true. Um, But Isaiah prophesied this before this guy's even born, that he would be a servant of the Lord and return God's people, which is exactly what he did, to Jerusalem, to to the land. And then you see like Daniel 11. I love Daniel. I'm thinking about us preaching through it next year. We'll see. But Daniel 11 foretells, uh, and 8, foretold the reign of another great, Alexander the Great, the Macedonian general who would arise to conquer the Persian Empire, that's Cyrus the Great's empire, would be conquered by Alexander the Great. And Daniel predicts this more than 100 years before the events happened in 330 B.C. So again, you get this other leader who's anticipated by God's word before it ever happens. So why does God give us these prophecies? Why does God tell his people the end from the beginning, as he puts it in Scripture? Particularly with regard to government and political leaders. Why does, he, why does he do this? He does this so that we will take heart as his people, knowing that he is ultimately sovereign over the ever-changing arena of politics and government. He does it so we're not going to freak out with all the ups and downs of political maneuvering and governmental changes and revolutions and good leaders and bad leaders and all the ups and downs of of human history in the political realm, we can stay steady knowing that God is sovereign over all this stuff. That's exactly why he puts those accounts that he foretells in the Old Testament. We can trust God no matter who's in office, okay? This week, we have a great opportunity to apply today's big idea. Can you guess what it is? Right. Tuesday's election day. And if you haven't exercised your civic right as a citizen, not all of us in this room are citizens. And there's a lot of people that would love the opportunity to participate in electoral politics in our country. But if you are a citizen in this country, you have a privilege. It's a stewardship. God's given you something and you can participate in electoral politics with a vote. Now, I know some of you might go, well, I don't want to vote, right? Because I don't think, these are all dirt bags, right? And maybe that's your position. But the point is, you have a resource. You have a capacity. You have a privilege that God has given you with regard to citizenship in the United States of America. And you've got to make a decision on how you're going to steward that. All right? We all do. And so Paul made use of the rights of his citizenship as a Roman, for sure. I mean, that's why he's going to appeal to Caesar, right? Because God gifted him with Roman citizenship, and he used it to accomplish God's purposes for God's glory. We can do the same. 
But listen to me. If you do cast a vote on Tuesday, maybe you already have, cast it with confidence. Don't do it sheepishly. Cast it with confidence, not confidence in the human candidate whose name is on the ballot. Cast it with confidence in our sovereign God who exists over and above and behind and before and around and in and through every political reality that's ever existed in human history. Cast it with confidence in him, not whoever that person is. Should you vet the candidates? Yeah, to the extent you can. You know, try to seek out people that'll uh, be just and righteous, you know. But at the end of the day, your confidence isn't in those people. Even the greatest looking one on this end can act oppressively or opportunistically down the road. I don't care what party they're from. They're human beings. They're fallen. We have to understand that. And so cast a vote with confidence in God. And folks, if your candidate loses on Tuesday night, man, don't, don't, don't be like the, the UT fan that like when UT loses the big game in the fourth quarter and nobody can talk to you for like eight days because you're so depressed. Like, don't, don't do that. Like, wake up Wednesday morning with a smile on your face and a heart full of joy and peace knowing that God's still in control, whatever happens. Okay? And let other people see you do that so that they know that you have a hope in this life that goes deeper than who gets elected in any particular election. And even if you choose not to vote, don't allow yourself to lose confidence in the fact that God can and will work through political leaders, even the most oppressive, oblivious, and opportunistic ones, just like we see in today's passage. Deal? All right. I'm going to end today's sermon with Paul's own advice. Again, this is the same Paul who's doing all these things in our passage, or having these things done to him, I should say, in our passage. So I want to end with his uh, advice to his, his spiritual protege, Timothy. And this is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Usually we stop at verse 2 when we quote this passage. I want to go to verse 4, and I think you'll see why. You ready for this? This is what Paul says after all these accounts that we're talking about in Acts, by the way. He says, I urge you, Timothy, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. And you're thinking, wow, you must be talking about Mother Teresa or something, right? He says, pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live, that's the purpose, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity, so that we as Christians can live Christian lives and live Christianly in society without persecution, without obstacles and hindrances to us being the church, being salt and light in wherever God's placed us. And then it says in verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So Timothy could not vote in his ancient first century Roman context for his political leaders. But folks, if you don't think God expected him to influence his political leaders through prayer, you're missing it. Just like he expected Esther to influence the political leader of her day, who happened to be her husband, the king, the emperor, so too he wanted Timothy, and I would assume, based on that, the rest of the church, all Christians, to be influencing their governments, their governmental leaders, the political uh, calculus of their day through prayer, at the very least, but certainly at first. 
prayer for all of them, even the nasty ones, but always trusting that God is sovereign over government. Um, Next week, Kevin's going to take us back. He's going to rewind the tape two years earlier and take us back uh, to Acts 24, where we're going to see how God ultimately sends his messenger to share the good news of Jesus Christ with an unscrupulous politician so that this unscrupulous politician might understand the truth and be saved. And we'll see that with Felix next week.